0: Hello, I'm Geoffrey Wyatt, Manager of Sydney Observatory. This audio guide and printable star map are available for you on our website at www.sydneyobservatory.com.au forward slash blog. You know, to really get the best out of your night's viewing, there are a couple of things that you need to take with you. Consider them essential supplies. And I would always recommend a blanket or a ground sheet, a pillow or two, some mosquito repellent. Naturally, you need your 2008 Australian Sky Guide and this audio guide. And a torch. Once you've done that, you need to find yourself a, a lovely, clear location, as good as you can get, with a view towards all four cardinal points. Now, when we talk about the cardinal points, we are of course talking about north, east, south and west. I know most people don't have a clear view in all four directions, but it really makes things very much easier for you and for us when people ring up if they can tell us the directions. Saying, for example, that there's a bright object out of your bathroom window is a little bit tough. So if we can narrow down these cardinal directions, it'll make this sky guide and the map far easier to use, and then of course if you see something exciting, like a shooting star, meteor or whatever, you can contact the observatory and that'll help us identify it. So how do we do it? First of all, we use the setting of the sun. The sun is still setting roughly due west at the moment, not quite, but close enough to it. we can look for the sunset, just mark off somewhere in the garden that's west, wait a few hours till it's lovely and dark and of course away from the bright lights and the trees. If you're facing due west, of course immediately to your right is north, behind you is east and to your left is south. We're going to start off our tour of the night sky by facing north and work around in a clockwise direction viewed from above. Going to east, south, west, and then back to north. So let's start off and look north. Looking north, if you've got a clear view, uh, you need to make sure that you're not near you know, buildings and trees and things like that. But roughly about ooh, two and a half hand spans above the horizon, you should be able to see an upside down question mark. Oh, I've just introduced something that I should have mentioned earlier. Two and a half hand spans. Why do we do that? Well, astronomers like to measure angles. Uh, we talk about you know, 90 degrees east of north, which is east. We can talk about degrees above the horizon. But actually, there's an easier way to find angles, and that is with your hands and your fingers. If you hold out a, a stretched hand at arm's length, from your pinky to your thumb, is about 15 degrees for the average adult. If you clench your fist, it's about 10 degrees in width. And a pinky held at arm's length is about one degree or twice the size of the full moon. So simply with your hand, it's easy to navigate around the sky once you've got your cardinal directions. So we're looking north, about two and a half hand spans above the horizon. You should be able to see an upside down question mark. Hmm, an upside down question mark? Why would someone come up with a question mark in the sky? Well, of course they haven't you must remember that many of the constellations that we talk about have been named from the Northern Hemisphere and as a result in the Southern Hemisphere, well, they're upside down. The question mark as seen from the Northern Hemisphere is actually the chest and the head of one of the most famous of all constellations, Leo the Lion. Constellations are simply patterns in the sky, And people have realised, look, if there are two and a half to perhaps 3,000 stars up there visible to the naked eye from a dark location, you simply can't remember them all. But if you make up simple stick figure drawings and tell an interesting story to go with them, then your chances of remembering that pattern is far greater. And that's all they are. It's a memory aid to help you find your way and navigate across the sky. Constellations, of course, go back thousands of years to people like Hipparchus who made star maps. But really, uh, Ptolemy got things going just under 2,000 years ago with his list of 18 constellations. According to the International Astronomical Union, we now have a total of 88. So, once again, we're looking north for an upside-down question mark, which is the chest and the head of Leo the Lion. Leo is one of the oldest and one of the most famous of all the constellations. It also, at the moment, is host to a wanderer. Now, the old Greek word for wanderer is planetaia. Of course, these days we just call them planets. Look towards slightly to the right, or towards the east from where you are, of the question mark, and you should see a relatively bright yellowish star-like object. It's not a star, but the planet Saturn. Saturn is clearly one of the most beautiful objects you can ever see. Well, apart from perhaps a Ferrari rolling off the assembly line. But Saturn is a gorgeous planet with a system of rings and moons that are visible even in a modest telescope. Unfortunately, binoculars won't actually cut it for you. So if you can get to an observatory anywhere across the land, go and have a peek because this is a really good time to see Saturn in all its glory. It really is the jewel of the night sky. Once you've had a look at Leo, and I should point out, of course, that Leo is a fairly famous constellation in places like Egypt. Thousands upon thousands of years ago, priests would watch for the rising of Leo in the east, and they would use that to work out the time that the Nile River would flood. This actually comes back to the second main use of the stars. Not only do we use them as a form of map to help find our way around, but we can use them as a calendar. That's precisely what people have been doing for a long, long time. So Leo was used to work out when the Nile would flood. Obviously, this was a long time ago before it was dammed. Apparently, it used to flood quite regularly, same time each year. Once you've had a good look at Leo and... I've got to point out that you really do need the Australian Sky Guide or one of our printable star maps because the constellations, just looking at them, you know, it's a spattering of dots. You need some sort of visual aid, I think, in many cases, simple stick figures to help you make up the elaborate figures that we're so used to seeing on you know, elegant star maps. So with your printable star map or your Australian Sky Guide, I'm sure you'll see an upside-down lion sitting there Pretty much like the Sphinx sits right next to the pyramids. Now once you've had a look at Leo, what I want you to do is to head towards the east and look for the next of the zodiac constellations. It's not as bright and it's nowhere near as distinctive as Leo, but it looks a bit like a a huge bent Y. Yeah, the letter Y. Well, believe it or not, what you're looking at there is the goddess of justice, Virgo. Virgo doesn't actually have a whole lot going for it in terms of bright objects or star patterns, but it does have one fairly bright star called Spica. Spica is about 260 light-years away, and that means that, of course, if we see it now, we're seeing it as it really was when the light left that star 260 years ago. You see, a light-year is simply the distance that light travels in one year. Spica is not that bright, it's not that interesting, but it was used by the very famous astronomer Hipparchus more than 2,000 years ago to discover precession of the equinoxes. Precession of the equinoxes is simply, well, how can I put it, a 26,000-year wobble that the Earth undergoes. So the Earth spins around a bit like a top, it's not quite perfectly upright. As it spins, it sweeps out an arc, and it takes 26,000 years to complete one revolution. We now measure that very accurately, but to consider that Hipparchus used the brightest star in the constellation of Virgo more than 2,000 years ago is really quite an amazing thing. After you've had a look at the relatively empty part of the sky around Virgo, continue to head further east, and low in the east you'll see the only zodiac that's not a living animal. Uh Uh-oh, pop quiz time. Think about it. Think of all the zodiacs, or path of the animals, which one's not a living animal? I mean, we've all heard of Leo, we've heard of Virgo, and some of the others, like Cancer the crab, Taurus the bull, of which I'll speak a little bit later. But which one of those supposed birthday star signs or zodiacs is not a living animal? Of course, Libra the scales. Libra the scales used to be part of the constellation... Of Scorpius. Oh, by the way, not Scorpio, but Scorpius. Julius Caesar, however, wanted his own constellation and broke those claws, broke the claws off Scorpius and turned it into Libra, the scales of justice. I've got to point out that the brightest stars in Libra, just above the horizon towards the east as we're looking at it, have stupendously interesting Arabic names. In fact, many stars have wonderful Arabic names. Uh, the ones in Libra, the three best names Zuban el Ganoubi, Zuban Eshamali, and Zuban el Akrab. Obviously, my pronunciation is probably fairly poor, but Zuban means scorpion, and the other, other uh, words give us a description of their position within the scorpion, so northern and southern claw in particular. So Libra is an interesting zodiac constellation because it lies on the path of the animals, the path that the sun, the moon, the planets follow across the sky, but it's the only one that's not a living animal. Once you've had a look at Libra, which, as I say, looks pretty much just like a a triangle, head towards your right again and we're now heading towards the south. What you'll see uh, is a fairly bright star. In fact, the third brightest star in the night sky will be about two handspans above the horizon. And that is, of course, the closest star to us, called Alpha Centauri. Alpha Centauri is only 4.2 light years away. The Sun is about eight and a half light minutes away. So, obviously, compared to the Sun, it's a lot further away. But it's actually our next-door neighbour. So look at this bright star in the southeast. It's the brightest star in that particular part of the sky. And you're looking at our neighbour, Alpha Centauri. Oh, if you're a fan of old, corny TV shows, that's the star that the family Robinson were heading to in that wonderful TV program, Lost in Space. Um, How do you get lost going to a star that you can see from here? Anyway. Alpha Centauri, just 4.2 light-years away. And it represents one of the feet of the centaur, the mighty half-man, half-horse, Centaurus, Chiron, who was tutored to Achilles, Hercules, and Jason of Jason and the Argonauts. Really quite a fascinating constellation, but we need another month or so before it's up high enough to talk about all of it. Centaurus does, however, wrap around, on three sides, the smallest and perhaps most famous constellation in the Southern Hemisphere, and that is, of course, the Southern Cross. The Southern Cross is small, but bright. It has three of the top 30 bright stars in the night sky. From top to bottom, it's about six degrees. Six degrees is roughly the field of view of most pairs of 7x50 binoculars. So if you've got a good pair of binoculars, put them onto a tripod. The problem with binoculars, I must say, is that we spend lots and lots of money on the binoculars, but not on a tripod or a mount to keep them still. You simply can't hold them still. So put them onto a you know a fence sitting on a pillow or something like that to keep them steady and look at the Southern Cross and you should just fit it in to the field of view that you see through 7x50 binoculars. The Southern Cross, small and famous. Most people, when they come to the Southern Hemisphere, say, I want to see the Southern Cross and we pointed out to them. However, over the summer months, the Southern Cross is very, very difficult to see early in the evening. It's only about this time of year, April onwards, that we start to see it in the southeast, getting higher and higher towards its peak, which will be in the winter months. So it's a good time to re-familiarise yourself with our small, bright constellation. By the way, it's not just on our flag. The Southern Cross is on five different national flags. Southern Cross, small and bright. And I should point out, of course, the oldest star watchers on the planet. The Aboriginal people of this land have been looking at the stars continuously for longer than any other group of people. And of course, as a result, they have wonderful stories about the Southern Cross and the stars around it. To some people, it represents the footprint of a mighty eagle or luru. To others, it represents a, a ray swimming along about to be munched on by a shark. And to others, it represents the four unmarried daughters of a group elder. The Southern Cross, small, bright, and beautiful. And at this time of year, quite easily seen, albeit slightly on its side, towards the southeast. As we head into the cooler months, the view of the southern Milky Way around the area of the Southern Cross and across to what we call the false crosses is perhaps one of the best parts of the sky to scan. Uh Uh-oh. False cross? Yeah. Look, there are two and a half to 3,000 stars up there that you can see with the naked eye from a dark location. You only need four stars to make up a cross. And at this time of year, we're looking towards the south. Unfortunately, there's a couple of obvious red herrings up there that will confuse us. They're not constellations as such. We call them asterisms, and it simply means a group of stars that looks like a picture, but officially it's not a picture. There are two. We've just found the Southern Cross, and we know it's the real Southern Cross because it's small, it's bright, and as we look at it at the moment to the left and below, we can see two bright pointer stars, one being Alpha Centauri and the other one being Beta Centauri. If you extend a line from those two stars, you'll point towards the real Southern Cross. But up higher and to your right, so further into the Southern Sky from the Southern Cross, you'll actually see two other groups of stars that look like crosses, both of which are larger and nowhere near as bright. One is called the Diamond Cross, and the other is called the False Cross, made up of stars from the constellation... ...of Vela and Carina, which used to be part of the biggest constellation in the sky, um, Argo... ...the ship that carried Jason and the Argonauts in search of the fabled Golden Fleece. So, in effect, while you're looking south, look for three crosses. The Southern Cross, lower but bright, towards the southeast. Up higher, in the south, the long, stretched-out Diamond Cross... And to your right, around towards the southwest, bigger and fainter false cross. Now what we're going to do is head around a little further and we're going to head towards the west. Looking towards the west, we can see the constellation of Orion. Now we've been talking about it for a few months because it is so famous. Orion's belt, for example, sits pretty much on the celestial equator, so it's Half north, half south. I think most people around the world know the constellation of Orion. And as I've mentioned, Australians, on the other hand, typically tend to talk about just the middle part of it as the sourceman. But what's intriguing is, as Orion sets in the west, his nemesis, Scorpius, will begin to rise directly opposite in the east. So keep watching it as we get towards the end of April, looking towards... The west, you'll see Orion dipping down lower and lower, and that will tell you that if you turn around, you'll see that huge scorpion coming up in the east. Continue around a little bit towards the northwest, and you'll also see that the constellation of Taurus will be starting to set lower in the northwest. Taurus is, of course, representing the mighty bull. Uh, It is in fact Jupiter, king of the gods, in the disguise of a bull chasing one of his many conquests across the sky. The way to find Taurus is to look for a a, a V-shaped group of stars with one of the stars being slightly reddish. Now red is typically the death colour of a big star. So if you see any star that's reddish, and of course as long as it's not Mars, you're typically looking at a star that's coming toward the end of its life. Now, from that V shape that makes up the head of Taurus, if you extend upwards, you'll actually make some rather long horns, which represent fertility. And one of those will point towards the reddish-looking planet Mars, which is currently in the constellation of Gemini the Twins in the northwest. Gemini, of course, represents the twins Castor and Pollux, who also were involved in the quest of Jason and the Argonauts for the search of the Golden Fleece. At this time of year, you'll see that Mars is only about 12 degrees above the horizon. So remember at the very beginning I said an outstretched hand from pinky to thumb is about 15 degrees. So not quite a full hand span, but you'll see the reddish Aldebaran, you'll see the reddish Mars in the northwest, about one hand span above the horizon. Now that we've had a bit of a, a scan around our cardinal directions, it's time to just pretty well sit back and look Straight up. If you do, you'll see a couple of bright stars. Dazzling above you will be the brightest star in the night sky, Sirius the dog star. It's the brightest star in the constellation of Canis Major, and it represents a hunting dog that tagged along with Orion. It is slightly, I suppose you'd have to say, west, or starting to descend into the western sky, as opposed to being directly overhead, but you tend to draw straight towards it because it is so bright. Sirius, the dog star, high overhead and descending towards the west. On the 12th of April, as you look towards the west shortly after sunset, you'll be able to see the thin crescent moon just 2 degrees from the planet Mars. Now, of course, this will continue on until they both set several hours later, but it does make for a fabulous photo opportunity. Put your camera onto a tripod, use the timer so there's no vibration, Play around with the exposure, and in the the glow of sunset you'll see the crescent moon and Mars just two degrees away. Uh, Remember that uh, two degrees is going to be roughly the width of your pinky twice over, held at arm's length. Just a few days later, on the 15th of April, uh, the moon, now gibbous, not crescent, oh, by the way, gibbous simply means more than half and less than full, We'll have moved from Gemini and we'll be over in the constellation of Leo. And it'll be just about 3 degrees from the planet Saturn and very close to the brightest star in the constellation of Leo, Regulus. If, on the other hand, you're a morning person, you can get up on the 5th of April at about 5.30am and look for the moon, which will be an incredibly thin crescent moon. And that'll be just 4 degrees from the planet Venus in the constellation of Pisces. Venus at the moment is dazzlingly bright in the eastern sky. Of course, Venus oscillates between the morning star and the evening star, but in April this year, Venus will be the morning star. It'll be brighter than anything else in the sky apart from the Moon and is a really spectacular view. So have a look towards the east throughout the early morning of April. This was the monthly sky guide for the southern sky for the month of April 2008, provided by Sydney Observatory. For more information, check our blog at www.sydneyobservatory.com.au forward slash blog. For more comprehensive maps and details about what's visible in the night sky, don't forget to purchase your copy of the Australian Sky Guide, available online or from the shops at the Powerhouse Museum or Sydney Observatory.